Hello, everyone, and welcome to Steadfast Purpose, the podcast that hopes to inspire and encourage you through the stories of individuals who had to overcome extraordinary circumstances to become who they are today. Our very first guest was convicted at the age of 18 for a crime he committed resulting in a double life sentence behind bars. After serving 32 years, he was released on December of 2014. Today, he is a pastor at Saddleback Church and the national director of Celebrate Recovery inside jails and prisons. He also continues to work with young adults and inmates inside the prison system. Danny Duchesne, welcome and thank Hi, you for I'm very being glad here. to be here with you. Thanks for inviting me again, Sergio. Um, before we get started, um, obviously I'm wearing a hat that says CR, and yes. uh, which stands for Celebrate Recovery. What right. does that stand for, for those that don't know, um, what Celebrate mm-hmm. Recovery is? Uh, Celebrate Recovery is a Christ-centered recovery program for those uh, working through internal hurts and hang-ups that, like me, may, have, may lead to a lot of external habits. So Celebrate Recovery is a step program, kind of like AA and NA, like Alcoholics Anonymous. So we work through uh, our recovery issues step by step. One of the interesting things about Celebrate Recovery that most people don't know is that only about one-third of CR attendees have uh, their struggles focusing on alcohol or drugs or substance abuse. Uh, Two-thirds of those attending Celebrate Recovery are working on our internal hurts and the hang-ups that uh, led to some external habits or dysfunctional parts of our life. When it comes to a program where people come for anything, mm-hmm. celebrate, celebrate recovery is what I think about. And, um, and I mean, it's, it's awesome to have you here as the national director of CR. Yeah. And today we get to hear your story. So um, if you guys don't know, Danny was actually the guy who inspired me to start of this podcast. Um, and uh, the way that happened was we had a conversation one day and after sharing your testimony, I kind of got to ask you a couple more questions um, regarding your background and your life behind prison and your childhood. Um, so today we get to hear that. So tell us a little bit about yourself. Where, where did you grow up? I grew up in Northern California in a town called Redding until I was about 16. And then when I was 16, I don't know how far you want me to go into it, but when I was 16, my uh, parents... Uh, experienced a terrible tragedy. They were arrested for trying to smuggle cocaine from Peru. That was uh, on December 24th, Christmas Eve, 1979. I heard my parents had been arrested in Mexico. So you're 16 years old and Mm -hmm. as a kid, must have been devastated, Mm -hmm. devastating, I should say, to hear your parents have been arrested for Mm -hmm. drug trafficking. Right. Um, What were you doing as a 16-year-old and what was that like growing up with your parents? Was there ever a time that you uh, noticed something out of the ordinary? Your parents may be involved with that mm-hmm. part of the lifestyle, or was it completely normal lifestyle growing up? It felt uh, normal growing up. My parents were not drug addicts. Um, they only drank in occasional parties. They weren't the daily drinkers. Um, they both worked hard, sometimes carried two jobs, um, worked hard to provide us with, uh, a nice home to live in and nice cars to drive and nice clothes to wear. Um, just a normal California family. Seen that way on the outside, on the inside. Um, it, 
you know, growing up, I was the kid who was a latchkey kid, you know, coming home from school at a pretty young age uh, without my parents around. So um, for most of my life, I was the only child growing up. So I got uh, used to being very internal with my thoughts and feelings, uh, very introverted. And so, yeah, when I discovered that they were arrested on Christmas Eve, um, it was uh, Out of all holidays, mm -hmm. Christmas Eve. Right. It was a hard turn. It was, uh, it felt like when I woke up on Christmas Day, you know, with my parents arrested in, in prison in Mexico, um, it was a complete and total shock. Um, you know, I know you have siblings, your step siblings as mm -hmm. well. You know, wh what did they think about the situation as well when that happened? Mm hmm. So my stepbrothers and a half-brother uh, were living w with us in the same town. So they were they had their mom and their stepdad there in that town. And mine, um, my biological father was in another town uh, several hours away. I didn't have a relationship with him at that time. We didn't have, um, like, weekend visits. It was, you know, usually once a year on the summer. Um, that I would spend time with him and things were good between us. So I got in my car I had just started driving at the age of 16 Just had my license for a couple months. So I got in the car and thought I would go find some of my family on Christmas morning to uh, To share the bad news with and and just be with somebody but they weren't home either wow. I didn't know that they had gone to my grandparents house So I ended up spending pretty much the whole day alone driving alone and trying to struggle with my thoughts and feelings my parents especially my mom what's happening with her and in, in a jail in mexico as a 16 year old you're focused on going to school uh did you continue going to school at that time did you drop out what what was the the following action that you took after that well on that day christmas day 1979 while i was driving it just so happened someone uh a friend had given me marijuana as a Christmas present. And so on that day, um, I chose while I was driving by myself to pull over into an empty parking lot and choose to get high. And I felt relief from what I was going through. And um, in the middle of the shock of what they had done, hearing that they had been trying to transport cocaine, it just, I turned in my mind inside of myself and I felt like life was over and I felt like well if they're going to be smuggle drugs and be involved with that then that's what I'm going to do too so it, I remember the moment almost as if it was yesterday where I said I'm going to be a burnout I'm going to be high I'm going to use drugs alcohol something every day for the rest of my life and I made good on that promise to myself and uh, did my best from that time forward to be high or drunk or on some form of drugs. So I moved from Reading uh, to Yuba City outside of Sacramento. I moved in with my biological father and uh, tried to adapt to a new school, a new home, but I was ad trying to adapt uh, getting high every day. And I mean, that is hard in itself already, just relocating to a new location where mm -hmm. you have to meet new people. Mm -hmm. um, so at 16, you're, you start smoking weed Mm -hmm. and it becomes your addiction in a sense. Mm -hmm. uh, and it's interesting because for you, you have you said you're an, you were an introvert. Mm -hmm. You keep your emotions bottled up, and mm -hmm. you chose this side, which is uh, drugs, alcohol, whatever it was, mm -hmm. to cope with your, your feelings and emotions. Right. 
did it ever become an addiction to the point where you said or questioned yourself, is this what I want? Is this enough? I got to quit. I got to figure out a way out. Mm-hmm. I don't want to end like my parents. Was there ever a time that you thought that? Oh, yeah, because very quickly I found the group of kids who were pretty much living like me, and we were doing our best to be drunk every day or to be high every day or to use some form of drugs every day. And so it very quickly spiraled down. Um, and so I was quickly uh, expelled from school. I just didn't show up. And, um, and then the friends around me, we, um, in our downward spiral, myself and them included, we were g- getting into more and more trouble, beginning to commit uh, kind of oppor- opportunistic crimes if there was opportunity to steal alcohol out of a liquor store or something like that. We were um, beginning to commit crimes. So I could see myself spiraling out of control and um, expelled from school. And um, my relationships were, you could tell, we're, you know, we're stepping off a cliff here. We're, right. we're going to hit bottom eventually. And so there were many times that um, I would think, okay, in the middle of being high or drunk, I would say, I have to stop this and would hate myself for what's happening. And um, especially for hiding my, um, kind of hiding my attention from my mom who was in jail. So I was kind of running from those feelings, not wanting to think about it. And then when I discovered myself never thinking about her, I felt all the more guilty for it and then would repeat the cycle of using drugs or alcohol to overcome the hard feelings. So yeah, there was quite a vicious cycle in which uh, I would try to quit and then the next day uh, I would turn right around and go buy some drugs or someone would bring something to me. And so I was in a a life cycle that included relationships, included my own addiction. I uh, began to gravitate more and more to alcohol. So alcohol began uh, to be my daily drug of choice. And, um, and then, um, you know, after a couple of years of that, by the time I was 18, it felt like I couldn't uh, get up and be productive in the day without having it. And it's also interesting because you said this was the tipping point where you were jumping off the cliff. Mm-hmm. And uh, you mentioned that your parents displayed a normal house you know they were mm-hmm. ambitious in getting what they wanted and making sure the family was okay mm-hmm. in a sense you had a foundation for um the life they wanted you to have mm-hmm. and instead you chose the opposite lifestyle and then the time of your crime comes mm-hmm. what led up to that uh, so uh, by this time, I'm 18 years old, had been in this downward spiral for uh, maybe two and a half years, and I uh, had been expelled from school, had been expelled from my biological father's house, so I'm trying to make life work out on my own. Um, and at that time, I was, uh, even though I wasn't going to school, the rest of the kids my age that were still in high school were coming daily to my apartment, so i I began to be that place where people would show up with drugs and alcohol, and that would be the place to have a party. And very uh, often, this was daily. And so uh, this began to be my identity. It was my daily routine. It was my source of drugs. Um, My house was always the place for people to come. And so I was benefiting quite a bit 
from people bringing drugs and alcohol to my house every day and, and me providing that uh, for the high school kids. So, uh, but I couldn't handle that lifestyle. Yeah. My, um, my debts piled up. Um, I was about to be evicted. Um, I couldn't keep myself supplied with drugs and alcohol. Um, I was not very well adept at um, doing other things like selling drugs or I wasn't really street work, right. uh, smart. Uh, I just was simply in a downward spiral of bad decisions. And uh, so came out in more and more compulsive decisions to try to feed my habit, maintain my lifestyle there. And then one day a friend came over and uh, op- described this crazy opportunity to make a lot of money real fast. And so it felt like by the next day I could have thousands of dollars um, to resolve all of my problems and needs for drugs and alcohol to maintain my lifestyle uh, where I was living. The only problem is it would come at the expense of a man's life. Now, you're 18 and uh, you you mentioned uh, a lot of money. Mm -hmm. What was a lot of money? At that time, uh, we fantasized that we would have about ten thousand dollars by the next day. Ten thousand dollars, and that was going to be split between you and your your friend. Mm-hmm. So right. five thousand bucks a piece. Right. Mm-hmm. And you guys uh, come across this opportunity. Mm-hmm. You you find a place. You, did you guys know the people um, that you guys were going to essentially rob? No. No. Mm-mm. And uh, so so you come to this place mm-hmm. and. Things go down south mm-hmm. pretty fast. Mm-hmm. How long before you got arrested um, after that crime? Uh, so thank God it was only about three weeks because we did get the money. We didn't get as much as we wanted. We ended up a couple thousand dollars each. And um, we immediately spent it all on cocaine, uh, immediately spent it all on drugs and alcohol and increasing the level of our parties. And myself personally, after the death of two men in a very vicious knife fight, um, I was very haunted from the crime I had committed. And so I was already out of control. And now I doubled my efforts to stay drunk all the time, to always have someone in my house. Uh, I was trying to, at that time, live by myself in an apartment. And now I couldn't stand to be alone anymore. Mm. And uh, just uh, I couldn't be alone with my own thoughts. And my own feelings so I needed to have something to keep myself drunk high and people around to engage me and uh, so within three weeks the money was gone and I had not changed my life in fact I had um, become worse not not worse as in hey I want to go commit more crimes right. uh, hey I want to you know hurt somebody again I didn't feel that way but I was uh, hurt in the sense of being haunted by the death of two men and so I was uh, running and escaping from my feelings. And so knowing myself and what had happened in the prior, prior two years since my parents' arrest, I was about to get worse. Wow. I mean, uh, yeah, I would be scared running for my life as well. And, mm-hmm. you know, here you are having these thoughts, but also just the fact that the crime went down. Mm-hmm. And uh, now did the police come and find you or mm-hmm. did you turn yourself in so about uh three weeks later i got a knock on my door and it was two detectives and they were asking me to come uh just like you see on the movies to come right. downtown for some questions yeah and um the problem is uh which is code for you're not leaving right so <laughs> since other people knew about the crime they had been making anonymous uh tips to the 
police, and so they had a, a pretty good idea which one of these high school kids, uh, or which one of these couple high school kids they should go question. And so we stuck out like a sore thumb. So yeah. it was pretty easy for them to find who to arrest and what questions to ask and how to obtain a conviction. So you get arrested and then you go through your detox. Mm -hmm. um, you're 18, you get sentenced a year later. Mm -hmm. Before you get sentenced, you come across uh, the good book, as they call it in jail, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and you meet Christ. Yeah. What was that process like for you? Yeah, so uh, the day after our arrest, there was a, um, a volunteer at the local uh, county jail that was in the jail cell with me and with my co-defendant uh, praying with us the very next day. But I was still... Um, had lived for several years high and drunk and was in, I was going to go for several weeks pretty much out of my head, not to mention the, just the shock right. of being arrested. But I think it left an impact on me that there was someone there that cared. And uh, both he and some other volunteers from local churches uh, came in once or twice a week. And uh, the, at that time, the jail where I was at, they let them right into the tank where we were at. So we got some personal care, and um, they began to share, um, you know, words like, "Hey, you're not too far gone. God loves you. He wants. He, you know, he uh, doesn't condone, you know, how you've been living, and things might be hard for you going forward. But uh, if you were to turn it over to Christ, you could have a new life, um, based not on external things, but based on." A change in your own heart, a spiritual life. And uh, that was kind of the message that got through to me. You would think it would be issues of heaven or hell, what's going to happen to me after my die, after I committed all these crimes. But I'm at that time, I'm 18 years old. So right. the concept of a future didn't make sense. What did make sense is that uh, even before my parents' arrest and then after their arrest and how I had been living, life was about these external materialistic gains, the house, the clothes, the car, uh, how people perceive you, the reputations. And then after their arrest, uh, am I the um, biggest drug user on campus? Am I the go-to for drugs and alcohol? Am I the party uh, kid? Am, am I the one that gets invited to parties and things like that? And then after my expulsion from my dad's house and from the school, am I the guy with the, with the party pad so I've been living my life with these external perceptions that I felt would give me, you know, um, connections with people. Yeah. So there in the county jail, everything is stripped away. There's absolutely nothing left. And in fact, your name is in the, my name is in the newspapers. Um, my friends are abandoning me left and right. Um, and the only people then that I began to have relationship with are these people that say they love God and they believed in Jesus Christ and that I could have a new life based on something on the inside and not all these external things which had been taken away at that time, I thought, forever. So um, that was November 7th, 1982. That I, you know, I remember it very clearly as the day that I chose to live a life in drugs and alcohol. I remember that day very clearly when... Uh, a brother named Monty DeVore asked me to pray, um, not to become religious, not to begin to go to church, 
but simply to invite Christ in to change who I fundament, who I fundamentally am on the inside and began a new life based on uh, spiritual principles and uh, the belief that God could take what what was left with, of my life and do something good with it right. to turn it around and um, possibly take my past and um, turn it around and do something good now. Which that in itself is a challenge, right? Being behind bars mm -hmm. because you face these other challenges mm -hmm. with inmates. Yes, you know, uh, especially if you've um, been arrested or convicted of a serious crime. Mm -hmm. They they expect you to live a certain lifestyle. Mm -hmm. But you're 18, you're young, 19, yeah. and uh, that's the only thing you can hope for when you haven't been exposed to, mm -hmm. I would assume, to that lifestyle mm -hmm. prior to going in, you know? Right. Um, so you, so you, you become a Christian in a sense. At what point did you decide, this is what I'm gonna do? Mm -hmm. No matter how long I'm in prison for, mm -hmm. this is going to be who I am. I, I would say that from that day, November 7, 1982, uh, instead of now living in a downward spiral of bad decisions, I, I began a more of an upward trend of decisions made in Christ. Um, so obviously the change wasn't immediate. Um, so I, I only knew how to be a drug addict for the last three years at that time. Uh, I only knew how to be around drug addicts. So um, my way of thinking was still based on that lifestyle. Um, but they gave me uh, those daily Bible reader plans and they brought me uh, Christian tapes, uh, the cassette tapes of uh, Christian music and Christian Bible studies and um, brought me books to read, and I devoured them for the next year while I was still in the county jail. And so that uh, year um, was a time of rapid spiritual growth. And so a year later, about a year later, I was sentenced uh, to two life sentences, which at that time basically meant you're never getting out because um, even if they say you have 50 years to life, it doesn't mean, um, that especially the politics at the time, there was not a hope of being released. So my uh, first day in prison uh, was uh, quite a shock because I had not been used to things like racism, had not been exposed to gangs, had not been exposed to, um, you know, some of the seedier side side of uh, the criminal lifestyle. So my first day in prison, uh, was a huge shock. And at that time, I'm 19 years old. I uh, had been growing in Christ for the last year. And um, and that, when I first heard messages like, uh, you you know, I know you, you heard that you have 50 years to life. You took a plea bargain so that there's a possibility you could be paroled, but um, no one gets out once you come in with the life sentence, just like that old right. song uh, by the Eagles, the Hotel California. <laughs> You're not getting out. <laughs> So that was the message I got on my first day inside and then began um, the prison indoctrination of where you have to sit, uh, where who you have to hang out with, uh, who you have to avoid. And you, by the way, you must do all these things at the expense of your life. Well, I would say I'm trusting God and um, this is how I'm going to live my life. And they said, 
No, you have to leave that outside the walls while you're in here. You have to survive. And then if you want, when you get out, if you ever get out, you can pick that up. So you can't come in here and do jailhouse religion. When I first went in, experienced a huge culture shock, uh, got transferred to three different prisons within a few short months. And so it's um, culture shock, life upheaval. Um, I was afraid. Um, and ex experiencing a side of life I had never experienced before. So, um, and not settled down enough to know, uh, you know, where even chapels are or how the whole thing functions. There was not an opportunity to be around other believers at that time. So just kind of like in the wind. And uh, I met a few guys and uh, in my own discouragement of life and their discouragement of life, young like me, we began to talk about, oh, we have to get out of here. We can't do this. Um, we're, we're, we all have life sentences. We can't do this for the rest of our life. So how can we begin to think about escaping? And um, just uh, young teenagers, practically, maybe they were in their <laughs> young 20s that probably watched too many movies. And um, so I, re I remember one of these guys was uh, a little bit more of a good thinker and planner about these things. And he, he began to think about where how this could happen. And he began to say things like, oh, you need to get a job over here. You need to get a job over there. And Danny, you need to get a job in, in this area, in, in the vocational shops where, you know, there's uh, metal, there's uh, welding shops and things like that. And that way we could have some metal stock to make weapons. And uh, so I said, well, what do you mean weapons? And he said, well, there's no way that you're going to escape without having weapons because at some point you might have to confront somebody or they're going to confront you and you have to decide if you're really going all the way with this or not and that's when i said i'm out hmm. um not uh going back to that life where i'm going to hurt uh, anyone again or back to drugs and alcohol i don't want to be in here right but at the same time um i my heart has changed and i'm not going to put someone else's life or drugs and alcohol ahead of me in my path again which is a sign that, you know, God is was transforming you. Absolutely. Uh, mm -hmm. you know, renewing your mind. Like well, by the, by the grace of God, that, that facility where we were all at, it was just a, with, this was all within a short period of a few weeks. And that facility had a huge race riot. And they had been having race riots before I got there. And uh, they had a huge race riot, and the, the institution staff just slammed the place for months. Wow. And uh, during those months that I was on complete lockdown, I mean, they fed us in our cells. We didn't get out. We didn't go anywhere for three months. And during those three months, um, back in the early 80s, they were still showing all the, you know, Jesus of Nazareth, you know, during Easter. They uh, so all week long they were showing these uh, Easter like, programs, right. and I'm watching these Easter programs on the television, hmm. and my heart is just breaking. And um, I think God used that lockdown to get a hold of me and help me get my feet on the ground and back into the life of discipleship, uh, reading my Bible and praying every day as I had been doing in the county jail for a year. And so also during that time, uh, other people got off of lockdown. Uh, like critical workers and people that were clerks or worked in the kitchen or they got off a of lockdown sooner. So uh, 
I could see them out my cell window carrying their Bibles and the, the facility would say, hey, church call or it's time to go to program at night, go to Alcoholics Anonymous or something like that. And I began to see all these people leave their cells mm. every night and head to church or Alcoholics Anonymous or some programs, some of them even going to college. And I would watch out my uh, cell door and I said, that's who I'm going to meet as soon as I get out of here. And so as soon as they let me off a of lockdown, I found those guys immediately. And uh, you said, I want to be part of that. Yeah, I immediately uh, began going to church then. And then uh, we had a brand new chaplain at the facility where I was at. And he was excited. And uh, a lot of the young Christians my age, many of them lifers as well, were excited to have a new chaplain and were excited uh, about his ideas of building a church inside the prison. And um, probably about 20 of us who in our early, uh, myself, my late teens, and them in their early 20s, probably spent the next 10 years of our life growing a church inside that facility with a new chaplain. And um, he trained us how to do ministry and how to lead worship and do drama ministries and how to um, write um, uh, discipleship classes. And so, yeah, we grew, we grew together as a church inside there. So, yes, yeah, so you start growing with these fellas uh, mm -hmm. inside the prison system. Uh, like many people do out here when they go to church. Mm -hmm. you know, they go in fellowship and right. build community and all that. Mm -hmm. um, at what point did you guys come across uh, Celebrate Recovery? Mm -hmm. and or was it uh, the purpose driven which is uh, ran through Saddleback Church yeah so that was in 2003 so that's uh, about tw um, 12 years after um, my being inside let's see it's quite a bit longer than that actually <laughs> so 82 that's about 20 years yeah. uh, of my time inside so by that time, um, I had gotten through Bible college and um, was kind of on a path towards Christian ministry uh, for quite a few years. And um, we had a, a great, um, like an associate warden level administrator that had become a Christian also. And uh, he had these facilities that were unused at night. And... Um, he said, hey, I'm here every night. There's no reason why you guys can't come in and use the classrooms um, for after-hours programs, whatever you guys want to do. Hmm. And that's um, that was a phenomenal time because he was not a uh, trained pastor. He was not um, someone that had been involved with Christian ministry all of his life. He was someone that uh, grew up as a guard inside the prison system. Right. He started as a guard. And uh, he was as nefarious as he describes his own story. He was as nefarious as the inmate population. And at some point he became a Christian as well and then wanted to do things differently. And so by that time he had, um, he had, you know, in his career, he had moved up and was now at the level where he had the warden's ear and he could uh, do new things. Yeah. And so that's when we started a, a program, a men's discipleship program, obviously in prison, uh, a men's, but it was more focused on a <laughs> context of accountability. How, <laughs> how would we live inside the prison? Would we um, uh, 
be, for example, would we only be uh, following the rules of the facility when people were watching? Right. Or did we have the kind of heart where we would uh, trust God, we would believe God and obey God and, and live with integrity? And how could we work with each other to build that kind of character and uh, to hold each other accountable when we weren't? And so it was kind of something we would adopt uh, into, right. that we would choose to uh, say, hey, brother, you and I, it's kind of like a sponsorship for 12-step. Right. For You're a sponsor, account, fellow accountability partner. Let's uh, help pull each other up, even if we're slipping. So that was uh, in the, that context that we reached out to Saddleback Church. We, we would go through a variety of curriculums, uh, spiritual growth curriculums, and love the process where we would um, have a specific book, maybe with some videos, and the inmates would run it. Uh, mm. And you know, the, our, uh, our sponsor, the, the uh, prison staff member, the Christian, would just open the doors for us. We would have the classrooms, and he would just kind of supervise what we were doing, but we would run the program. Oh, I mean, mm-hmm. I just want to touch on the deputy opening up the doors for you guys, and, mm-hmm. and just just the fact that he had discernment to yeah. trust you guys in that mm-hmm. area. Um, I think it's just another way God just says, "Hey, like, absolutely, you're you're doing what I'm asking you to do," mm-hmm. and He opened the doors for you, right? And uh, not only for yourself, but just to reach others. That's you know? right. And, mm-hmm. and, and I think uh, a lot of people don't uh, understand the concept of, you know, God's going to use you or use your story yeah. uh, to build you, to right. build character, mm-hmm. to develop you, and essentially um, just build a, a foundation, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's awesome to hear, like, the deputy yeah. actually did that for you guys. That's right. I think he, he captured the very essence of what you're saying, that uh, he could he could think of himself, uh, how he was when he was a guard, and now how he is at, as a, you know, facility administrator, and how God used him in the circumstances that he was at, like the old saying, you have to blossom where you're planted. And I think that he grasped that concept for us as well is that here's a, a group, many of us lifers, um, not expected to get out. And he had that concept that even though they're in prison, they're growing just like me. They need to blossom where they're planted. They need to lead their own programs if, they're, you know, if they've grown enough. Hmm. And, um, and uh, I think that that was a, a tremendous growth model for a lot of the guys there. So that's how we discovered Saddleback Church at that time in 2003. The Purpose Driven Life was a, a national movement right. in uh, many churches throughout the country, and and the book had become a national bestseller. And um, it was well known as a 40 day of purpose challenge, and that's kind of right where we were at. Right, is that you could take a um, a group of men and we would challenge each other. We would go through a spiritual campaign together. And we would hold each other accountable in it, you know, pull each other up if they, we were struggling, but take that 40 days and make it a, a you know, a, 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 a intentional, focused spiritual growth campaign period of our life. And um, so, yeah, that's what we want to do. And Saddleback Church agreed to donate the materials for us. And uh, then when we heard that it would run, we would run it on the inside of prison at the same time that people outside of prison would run it, which was uh, from uh, Easter to 
Pentecost. So that 40-day period from the time of uh, Christ's ascension, right, after his resurrection to the day of Pentecost is a 40-day period. And then Pastor Rick is so good describing many 40 days of periods in the Bible, right? right? So we said, oh, this is great. And that there, in fact, there are many churches outside doing it at the same period from here to the day of Pentecost, that there's a 40-day challenge period that the churches outside the prison would be doing as well. So we said, well, we want to run it in here the same time that they're running it out there. Reading the in the book, because there's 40 uh, chapters of readings, we would be reading in the book, all of us together, and they outside the prisons would be reading in the book Doing on the, the same, same date. Yeah. So we said, oh, this is a phenomenon. And that, so we said, oh, we wonder how many more people in the prison here would love to do that and invite their family members outside the prison to do it as well. They could read the book the same day, go to church and hear the same message on the weekend. And so we thought this is a great opportunity to invite more people. How many people did you guys have at that time? So at that time, we had 20, 20 people meeting once a week in a classroom. And uh, so we said, okay, you go to that building, go cell to cell, you know, invite people to come. And uh, so we were pretty surprised when 200 men uh, signed up. Wow. And uh, at that time. Talk about a revival. There was only like a thousand <laughs> people in that, you know, sub facility where we were at. So <laughs> it was a significant, you know, part of the population of that prison. Right. Uh, all signed up to go through this campaign with us. And so, um, you know, you know, with a lot of thanks to outside volunteers that were going into that prison where we were at, we had a, a great group of uh, local church members that they loved Rick Warren as well. So they got involved with us from the outside and and um, we had all the handouts, you know, every week we had the chairs filled with, um, you know, Bible markers, you know, with, uh, and we did a great job with, with, you know, dividing the work up into different leaders. You are the prayer campaign leader. You're the small group uh, leader. You're going to organize that. You're the weekend service coordinator. So we did a great job. Wow. We, they gave us uh, Saddleback Church's campaign strategy, how to divide it up into different uh, duties, different leaders, and how to um, how to focus your worship service and how to focus your small group service and how to choose leaders and all of these things. So we did it in there the same way that Saddleback did, does out here. And, Which uh, mm-hmm. is awesome. Mm-hmm. Um, what were some of the inmates in the in in, in there saying? And, and mm-hmm. uh, I mean, there had to be some talk about it. You know, hey guys, you know, especially with segregation going on, yeah. You know, you mm-hmm. you have an issue now. Mm-hmm. You're, you're creating a problem, disrupting right. the system in a sense, um, and mm-hmm. you know, you're creating a movement right. of inmates, one, wanting to be a part of something, and but two, mm-hmm. you're they're uh, removing themselves from their daily routines mm-hmm. that they've been in for years. Right. Yeah, it was. Um... I think it, it it provided a way to show the rest of the population that there's a better way. Hmm. It provided a way for us, um, by example, of the 200 men at, attending, that there, that there can be a, a different way of doing things. It, it, what was uh, really cool about it is we didn't set out to go 
to the rest of the administration, to the rest of the inmate population and say, hey, you have to stop segregation. You have to stop gangs. You have to stop doing We didn't have to go out there and do all that. We just simply grabbed a bunch of chairs. We moved chairs every week into a bigger building, the prison visiting room, where which could handle 200 people because right. the chapel only handled um, maybe 60 or 70 people. It was a, The chapel was a small room. So to handle 200 people, we had to use the prison visiting room. So we had to carry all the chairs. We carried all our music equipment. So every week there's this big you know, movement right. of chairs and equipment to the visiting room. And then there's this big movement of people. Uh, 200 men out of the facility are all going to this um, to the visiting room. And, and then all the volunteers are coming in from the outside. So it was very noticeable right. to the rest of the population. Couldn't keep it on the download. Right. <laughs> so um, I think just the the mere fact of having that event um, let the rest of the population say, you know, it was a witness to them. And then, of course, 180 people uh, graduated out of the 200, 180 wow. people. And out of those 180 people, some of them were very, uh, had uh, before the event had been non-Christian, uh, were influential, some of them gang members. Um, wow. I, I, we, we didn't set out to stop gangs <laughs> in the prison system, but when they became Christians, it was very noticeable yeah. to every everyone else that uh, something's happening here. Now, were you a leader uh, of the... Mm-hmm. So I was the campaign director. Mm. So did that put a target behind your back? It did. It, um, at... So at at that time, it wasn't, um, we continued to grow. So we started with the 40 Days of Purpose campaign, uh, had 200 people attending, 180 people graduated. And then so afterwards, we now had a larger group of people asking, hey, what are we going to do next? Right. So they didn't want to quit. Some Obviously, some people did. But... Um, we then began to think, okay, what would be next? We love the process where we have the small groups going on and, and the small group gets to have their the the men in blue get to work with the men in blue. So the, the guys, uh, like the old uh, Alcoholics Anonymous saying that um, having one addict helping with the other addict is, is the best model. So I think the population liked that. It was very non-religious. Um, we weren't asking everybody to carry Bibles across the prison yard to the chapel. They were doing something new and they were leading it themselves. So they wanted to do the next thing. So um, when we looked around to see what Saddleback had to offer, um, we discovered Celebrate Recovery. Yeah. And um, so, uh, and another thing is that the leaders, about 20 of us that uh, were leaders during the campaign of 40 days of purpose uh, we then heard that there's such a thing as the purpose-driven church so we had just completed the purpose-driven life and now we heard okay there's such a thing as a purpose-driven church hmm. and we began to see that that is such a great model to use inside the prison system because it's based on uh, the five purposes that god has for us and we could have leaders helping to lead in the different five purposes just as they were helping to lead the different parts of the campaign right so we were all excited because it was something we could do together. So we studied, uh, Saddleback Church sent us their whole purpose-driven church uh, training campaign, a huge CD, uh, our DVD set, 
and the books, and we devoured the books and the and the uh, training that they give at Saddleback Church for Purpose Driven Church, and we helped to transition uh, those <clears throat> 200 people from the Purpose Driven Life into a Purpose Driven Church model. Now, you told me a story about all these riots going on, mm -hmm. and when you started this, yeah this 40-day right. purpose, mm -hmm. you mentioned that uh, essentially six weeks. Right. Not a single fight broke out. Right. Mm -hmm. And, I mean, that's that's a, that, I would say that is God working in it itself. I mean, mm -hmm. talk about spiritual warfare every day when you're there. Right. Whether people are religious or not, there's mm -hmm. something going on. Mm -hmm. This program starts, not a single riot. Right. Um, mm -hmm. That, I mean, that had to speak volumes to the staff there. Yeah, it um, raised a lot of eyebrows. Is this is kind of like how uh, God sets up the times? You know, it talks about Jesus at the right time in the right generation. God sent His Son, and so God had been working through history to bring about this time that He would send His Son. What well, you know, the the conditions for Jesus' birth. Um, the political conditions, right. all of it had just been set up. And I feel when I look back and I wonder how in the world could that have happened, you can see that things that had been taking place where it was one of those things that God just set up the right crossroads of time inside of that facility um, because it had been on lockdown for two years straight. Wow. There was at least a portion of the population locked down for two years. It could have been this group or that group or a partial of this group of people. And um, as soon as they would say, okay, we're going to try to let some of you guys off of lockdown, they would have a right in the, a short period of time, they'd be locked down. So we, we questioned whether we could even have 200 people in the Purpose Driven Life program and actually be able to finish because they were, um, they were just now starting to release from lockdowns and starting to see if the population would program together. Right. And none of us really knew how this was even going to go. <laughs> so it was quite... Church planting 101. It was a phenomenon <laughs> that, um, you know, six weeks later, no one had been locked down again. Wow. And they were able to complete. And I think um, at the same time, God had moved different administrators, uh, different captains of the facility. He had changed uh, some of the administration around. He had moved some of the gang leaders around, uh, had been transferred, and there were new people there. And so it's like things that you no one human being could have orchestrated. Right. It had to be God to bring uh, different, even... A shift in um, the system. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. A, a shift had happened. And so when we completed <laughs> the program with all of these people, I think it opened the eyes of the administration as well. And they were they began to think about how we could do things differently here, uh, and they they were even willing to change uh, times that dinner would run in the population. So mm -hmm. dinner would be from this time to that time. They were able to change it so that more people could go to programs now. So uh, more people could go not just to our programs, but more could go to Alcoholics Anonymous. Right. M more could go uh, to the Native Nations twelve step program. More could go to, you know, different, uh, even different religious programs. So there yeah. was more rehabilitation that got sparked in that facility. And I think a lot of the long-termers, a lot of the older lifers, 
a lot of those that had been around and had just living in lockdowns and uh, no sense of hope that they began to get involved with other things. Even if they weren't involved with us, they got involved with other things as well and began to lead wow. other programs as well. So the whole facility began to change. And so when we looked to what our program would do next, um, we discovered Celebrate Recovery. And so um, we invited Saddleback Church to come back. Um, well, it's, I don't know if we invited them or they were excited to be involved with us. So it was a little bit of both. Um, they, they had tried Celebrate Recovery in a facility in New Mexico, uh, kind of a trial basis. Actually, I don't think uh, Saddleback Church and, and the leader here, Pastor John Baker, who founded Celebrate Recovery, didn't even know huh. that it could be done in prison. But a warden in New Mexico said, hey, some of the ladies uh, in our program are, are starting to run Celebrate Recovery. And it kind of opened their eyes that they could do this in prisons as well. So they looked to us. Um, since we had done such a great job with a purpose-driven church, they looked to us to teach us how to run the full Celebrate Recovery program right. with small groups and a large group and worship and all of that. And um, they came inside the facility and taught us how to run Celebrate Recovery inside the facility, just like they do on the outside. So the ones that came to see you, mm -hmm. uh, was it Pastor John Baker, mm -hmm. uh, Pastor Rick? Right. So when we finished our, our first Purpose Driven Church campaign, one of our volunteers had gone to college with one of the pastors here, Pastor Steve Rutenbar. Huh. So when we had a big celebration with 100 people, 180 people graduating, Steve Rutenbar came into the prison. Uh, we invited him to come in to help celebrate with us. And uh, he baptized some people and we just had such a great celebration that he came back and reported to Saddleback Church what had taken place and uh, they immediately fell in love with us wow. and um, wanted to be involved with us. So uh, we went through the Purpose Driven Church uh, training and began to transition into a Purpose Driven Church model and then Saddleback wanted to come in and have a larger event with us. And at that time, all of the pastors, uh, the main elders of Saddleback Church, including Rick Warren, uh, David Sean, Steve Rutenbar and Tom Holliday, and uh, they brought in a special guest, uh, musician hmm. and uh, we just ha had a great uh, all-day yard event so when you bring that up i have some mm -hmm. of the pictures here that i came across mm -hmm. um when uh one when you were in in inside the the jail having a service mm -hmm. and you are at the center of uh the inmates here right what's mm -hmm. going on here so that's the day that saddleback church had come in and so in that group of uh <clears throat> probably between 100 and 150 inmates all in a circle outside includes uh, local church volunteers, all of the Saddleback church staff. Rick Warren is in that group there. Yeah, I see. I see Rick is uh, yeah, he's here. They're baptizing yeah, us. He you guys are baptizing So this is at, here. at the end of a long day. So there past, you are with a black eye. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so that's some weeks later <laughs> with a black eye. So this so, after the, the baptismals right. and all that. So the prior picture with all of us in the middle of the facility was the end of the day where Pastor Rick uh, did a message out in the middle of the facility. We had music all day, baptisms out in the yard, and he had done this uh, great message called The Road to Recovery, which are the eight principles of Celebrate Recovery. Huh. And it was so phenomenal 
to have that message. And he did it in such a great non-religious way. It was out in the middle of the yard, not in a chapel or, or in cell. It was right out where everyone could hear it. And he did such a great job talking about this road to recovery that the inmate population, uh, who weren't even part of us, uh, when he gave an altar call, came across the yard and mm. uh, received Christ out there in the middle of the yard. And then we had water baptisms in the middle of the yard. And uh, and then later that night, the big circle in, that we had in the middle of the facility yard outside was uh, the large group of people uh, all agreeing together that we would form a purpose-driven church inside the prison. And, it, and the warden was there. Um, much of the staff was there. Um, a lot of local church volunteers were there. So we... Uh, you know, dedicated this place to have a ch purpose-driven church inside the prison, largely inmate-directed. So at that right. time, I, I was kind of the inmate leader of it. So when we when we formed that church, it was uh, and it was very public, and it was very publicly non-racist. It was very publicly uh, non-segregated. Mm. And we didn't. Yeah, I mean, in this picture, yeah. I mean, you have a very diverse group. Right. We weren't telling people, "Hey, quit your gangs, quit your segregation." We that wasn't our message. Right. The message was just come and come and see. Yeah. It wasn't us going out saying, "Stop what you're doing." It was saying, "Hey, come for a better way," and many did. And so it was very public. It was very noticeable. The baptisms were very public. They were outside. They were not segregated baptisms. You didn't have a baptism water for one race and another baptism water for the other. So they shared the same baptismal pool. Yeah. Um, was that in itself that's got the no attention no. of many, right? Absolutely. Yeah. So I wasn't the only one assaulted, by the way. There were yeah. other people baptized that day that were assaulted as well. So um, the Saddleback Church gave us an award that's... Um, for a healthy church growth model on the purpose-driven church, since we had done it in such a, you know, what right. would seem to be such a contrary circumstance yeah. to form a purpose-driven church model. And they felt, uh, Pastor Rick felt that we had done such a great job transitioning a group of inmates from purpose-driven, you know, from our small church gathering, men's accountability group to purpose-driven church revival uh, uh, from purpose-driven life revival to purpose-driven church foundations right. to grow this group of people now to disciple them. And um, so they granted us an award, and that's the award you see there. It so, only costs you a black eye. Yeah, so <laughs> I got the black eye about the same time that we got that award. Yeah. <laughs> so that's they, awesome. They, uh, what happened is the purpose-driven church book uh, no, the Purpose Driven Life book was now a national bestseller, was on the New York Times bestsellers list. And um, so the news media caught wind of what was happening inside the prison with Rick Warren visiting us and, uh, and the things that had been happening inside the prison. So the news media was interested in hmm. uh, reporting on this, doing stories. So when the news uh, media reported on the revival that we were happening, um, they then wrote their stories in such a way that it it kind of let the rest of the nat national and especially our state California prison system, uh, the people that weren't there, let other prisons and other gangs outside of the prison and other people who were 
in favor of racial segregation, it offended them mm. to hear these newspaper reports of what was happening. Mm. So they felt that they had to do something. Um, I don't I don't know if so much that the individual inmates wanted to stop what we were doing. They just didn't want the newspapers reporting right. that inside the prison system it was it made it look soft. Yeah. Or it made it look like, you know, it's not hardcore. Yeah, it, it questions everyone in there. Right. You know, uh, you're in a system where mm-hmm. you're supposed to be tough. Right. And a lot of the times people who turn to Christ essentially end up becoming PC, mm-hmm. you mm-hmm. know, and and this was not the case. Right. It's something it's a lifestyle people are choosing mm-hmm. and they're living it publicly mm-hmm. and they're making a statement which obviously it's going to catch the eye right of all the shot callers and right you know and uh and yeah, yeah, it's tough yeah. you know i i think it's a it's just such a great time to to share the difference between religion and a real spiritual movement of god and you know just down to earth street level kind of christianity because right. that's that's where we were at but there's no way that a news media can tell the story without painting it as if the whole prison is turning into a church. Right. And, or as if the whole prison, uh, the gang members and all of these people are turning to religion. Right. So they just don't understand it. But really, we were not. Everyone didn't start going to church. They went to celebrate recovery. They did our purpose-driven life groups. We continued to do the purpose-driven life. They did our uh, inmate-led programming. Uh, some people went to church, obviously, but it wasn't our goal to get everybody going to the chapel, carrying their Bibles across the yard and turning into a religious group. That wasn't our goal. Right. Our goal was to find recovery. Uh, you know, we, we gradually um, moved towards more of a celebrate recovery model. We still did purpose-driven church, but the masses of people um, began to go to celebrate recovery. And so they didn't go to the church. They went to the visiting room. And they went to the uh, recovery program trailer to do our small groups and our large groups. So they were coming to Christ left and right. Right. They just didn't go to church. Yeah. They went to celebrate recovery. And, and many of them did come to church, but it didn't turn into a religious movement. And so since we had more than 200 people, uh, by that time we had actually grown to about 300 people involved. Many of them going to church and many of them just doing celebrate recovery. Right. So we had um, a good over... Uh, 25% of the facility were involved. And then uh, um, non-Christians began to do more recovery programs as well. So there was a huge change in the facility. And I think that um, that gained the attention of the media from California to the New York Times, uh, the K-Love Christian radio station. So it was reported on widely. And uh, some did a great job reporting on it and others, you know, made it sensationalized it which put a target on many of our backs. So, But uh, thank God that um, that the facility, like I said, the crossroads of times were such that we had a new group of administrators at the prison willing to look at rehabilitation as a goal. Hmm. They even did training with the inmates and with the staff and how we could do things differently here. And... Um, so they could have taken the whole group of us, especially myself, kind of the target for assaults. And, um, and then after the assault, since we, cont- since we didn't quit, you know, it could have gotten worse. Right. Um, but instead of 
shutting us down, you know, transferring me to another prison um, and stopping everything. They found ways to navigate uh, with the inmate population um, and, and specifically addressed, addressed it to many lifers and invited them into doing their own programs. Even if they didn't want to do Celebrate Recovery, they could do their own programs they could lead their own programs and have a rehabilitative model for their prison. Now, um, after the assault, uh, you said you said to me once that uh, you're walking now with several other inmates mm-hmm. who were still mm-hmm. breaking the rules of segregation. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, that in itself, I would say, would create even more hostility mm-hmm towards you yeah it could have there there was a moment that it felt like we were on a knife's edge how this was gonna go and uh, after I was initially assaulted I didn't like I said I didn't get transferred from the prison and we didn't quit I did my best to go around the the prison yard and um, talk to the different groups face to face uh, with a black guy and uh, with all eyes on me, you know, walking around the prison, talking to different <laughs> groups, I had some guys helping me. I didn't have to do it by myself. Um, but just kind of went and talked to everybody and said, you know, it's not our goal here to to slander your gang or to, you know, tell the newspapers that we're not having segregation in here anymore. That's not our goals. We're just simply opening the doors right. for someone to do something different. And by the way, um, the administration approved us as uh, an approved um substance abuse programming inside the prisons, which meant that if they, if the inmates attended our substance abuse programming inside the prison, they would have automatic um, aftercare where the state would pay for um, up to 90 days in a program outside the prison when they paroled. So mm. they would get to go uh, um, cost-free right. to an aftercare facility and they would help them get their feet on the ground after they got out. So we had a great win-win program, and that that helped me to go around to the rest of the facility and say, hey, we're not trying to make you look bad. We're giving an opportunity for change and to stay out of prison for the rest of their lives and not come back to prison ever. Stay with your family, stay with your kids, raise your kids. And I think that that message um, where we're trying to do good for the whole inmate population eventually got through to some of them and it just kind of calmer heads prevailed and we were able to continue on with what we were doing. So you have your CR uh, <clears throat> meeting, mm-hmm. the big meeting with Rick and Pastor Rick and mm-hmm. Pastor John. Uh, shortly after that, um, did uh, Pastor Rick come back and try to get you to get involved with Saddleback somehow? Yeah, so he, uh, they came back again a few, a few times. If it wasn't Pastor Rick, it was Pastor John and Pastor Johnny Baker and, and other leaders of Saddleback Church and Steve uh, Rutenbar. So the elders were involved with us. Right. And uh, in fact, after we formed a purpose-driven church, we, uh, we made uh, certificates of membership, honorary membership for uh, the Saddleback elders and leaders that had been coming in. So wow. um, Pastor Tom Holliday took me into his office uh, a couple years ago and showed me one of his best wall hangings was that <laughs> he has that membership to the Purpose Driven Church inside the prison. That's awesome. It's still on his wall. So um, they were committed to helping us. 
and uh, we we felt like um, you know God had opened this door for us to be you know partners with Saddleback Church and with the local churches in the area around the prison, right. and so we felt like we had this great partnership and connection with other churches, and that's really what, the outside the volunteers going inside of prisons, you know, is really makes all this happen because many years later I'm long gone but the volunteers are still there many of them are still helping in that prison right if it's not the same volunteers the same church hmm. is still sending volunteers in there and so um, at that time in one of those visits back inside that prison uh, Pastor Rick is is telling the rest of his staff you know we really need to hire Danny he can do this you know, out of Saddleback Church to to other uh, prisons. And they said, well, that would be great, but Danny has two life sentences, and he's probably not getting out. And um, what they did is they hired the prison administrator that had helped us <laughs> start this whole thing. Saddleback Church hired him. Sneaky Rick. <laughs> and he uh, he then began to take what the model that we had done at that prison Right. He then began to take this throughout the rest of the country. At that time, Celebrate Recovery is now having training events throughout the country to train uh, outside churches how to run Celebrate Recovery, local community uh, Celebrate Recoveries. So Celebrate Recovery is growing like wildfire at that time throughout the country. And so wherever they went and did a training, um, our sponsor went there and trained them how they can do this inside of the jail or prison. Right. And um, and then we we've had several national directors for CR inside prison since then, and then when I was able to be released, um, they all retired and gave me the job. So talk about that process <laughs> of you becoming released, uh, mm -hmm. getting released. Um, you go to the parole board. Yes. And mm -hmm. uh, you had the blessing of Rick, mm -hmm. Pastor Rick Warren, Pastor John Baker. Mm -hmm. A few other elders here at Saddleback mm -hmm. that vouched for you. Mm -hmm. uh, talk about that—the excitement to un, to possibly being released mm -hmm. and and then becoming and and being granted that release. Yeah, it's um, this is this is these are things that only God could orchestrate. Um, so I ended up leaving that prison where we formed that purpose-driven church and celebrate recovery. I ended up leaving that for being transferred. In fact, all of us that were there at that prison, they changed the mission of the prison. Hmm. And they ended up sending everybody out. And wherever these leaders went, whatever prisons they got sent to, they helped to form Celebrate Recovery and church models in the prisons where they got sent to. So it was this huge scattering, if you think of the early church, where right. the early Christians all in Jerusalem ended up through persecution, getting scattered everywhere. So we all got scattered, and I got scattered, and uh, ended up, you know, getting transferred, transferred back, transferred to another prison. And during all of this time, we started Celebrate Recoveries wherever we, we went. I ended up starting Celebrate Recovery twice more in other facilities. And um, legally, things began to change with lifers as well at the same time, some uh, major court decisions about what does it mean to be a lifer and let's define what it means to be a lifer. And um, so by the time I, uh, many years later, 10 years later after this, 
I finally went to the pro board for the first time 10 years later wow. since I first met Pastor Rick and, and got involved with Saddleback Church. So it was a decade <clears throat> later that I finally uh, got to see the parole board. And by that time, the date, November 7, 1982, when I first came to Christ three weeks after my arrest to um, the year 2013, when I first went to the pro board, 32 years had passed where I had continued the, this uh, member. Uh, so full circle in drugs and alcohol, I was in a constant cycle of downward spiral. Hmm. Bad decision after bad decisions becoming more and more the identity of an addict. Now, I had lived for 32 years in that upward trend of making decisions in Christ and and uh, these great events like these yard events and then many other events over the course of time um, where they could have turned out to be very bad situations, right. but God turned it around for good. And all of those things got written in the record. So even that day when I was assaulted, other people wrote it in the record of my central file. So all of these things are recorded for right. the last 32 years. So by the time I went to the pro board, I had a fat central file of a lifestyle for 32 years. I never thought I was going to get out. I right. began a different tra trajectory because my heart changed. But uh, 32 years later, when I went to the pro board, it was unavoidable to the pro board. And so they didn't see a connection between the person, the addict I was at 18 and the person I was now at that time, at nearly 50 years old, they could not find a connection between that old person and the new person. So they could not find a reason to hold you back, to hold me. Inside. But it's also a great picture that you just painted, mm -hmm. uh, you know, of, of people who are Christian and, and the lifestyle we, we are to live. Mm -hmm. We decide to follow Christ, right? And at that point, and even before that, everything is written down. And, mm -hmm. you know, there's going to come a day where you get questioned and you're going to have to face the judge mm -hmm. and they're going to pull that file. Mm -hmm. Is there a connection between your old person and your mm -hmm. new life? Right. Mm -hmm. And and for you, it's very clear. It was very clear. Mm -hmm. No, not a single connection, not a single mm -hmm. uh, decision made based on who you were prior mm -hmm. to coming in. Right. And they saw that. Mm -hmm. And uh, and then, you know, Pastor Rick comes, John Baker comes, mm -hmm. and they vouch for you. Yeah. And uh, you're granted a release. Yes. Mm -hmm. What went through your head the moment you hear you're going to be free? Well, when you're sitting there in in front of the pro board, they, they have a long, had a two and a half hour hearing. Within, and this is after some uh, psychologists uh, evaluate you a couple months before you see them. So there's quite a few processes involved with it. And so you have a two and a half hour hearing and then they vacate the room and it's like waiting for a jury and then the jury comes back. And so you, you're sitting there and you don't know what the verdict is right. at that point. And, um, and I just remember they began to share uh, the story of my life. They began to recount the story of my life from the, you know, how awful the crime was, how many people it hurt, and then the, uh, my in-prison life and all the things that had 
um, been done and what the hopes are after I get out with the community support that I have offer of a job here at Saddleback Church and many other things. So they began to uh, recount the whole story of my life. And in the middle of all that, they said, and so for this reason, we're choosing uh, to grant your uh, suitability for parole. And then she <laughs> continues on with the statements. And it's okay. like, at first it goes over my head. Um, but they always have a, um, a representative with you at a parole hearing. And so at, as soon as she said it, the representative reached over and uh, put his hand on me because he heard it. Right. It went over my head. Yeah. But he heard it. And then it's like as my mind went numb, it's like listening wow. to Charlie Brown uh, adults on, you yeah. know, on the phone. It, I could hardly uh, pay attention after that. It was just overwhelming. And I left the, the parole hearing and the... Uh, at that time, the chapel was very nearby. So uh, I was able to leave the parole hearing, go straight to the chapel, and let the chaplain uh, know, and a few of the other Christian uh, that were sitting around in the chapel just hanging out in the middle of the day. Yeah. And I was able to share what just happened. So this is mm -hmm. 32 years yeah. of you being behind prison. Mm -hmm. um, during that time, what verse, if you have any, or what story in the Bible uh, gave you hope um, th that mm -hmm. whole time and made you cling to and say, this is what God promises, say, mm -hmm. and this is what I'm going to hold on to? Yeah, I think, um, you know, 2 Corinthians 5, where if any man be in Christ, he's a new creation. All things have passed away. All things have become new. That was something I had to hold on to constantly mm. because the whole, um, the issue of identity is a major issue inside of prisons. Uh, I would say, not to say it's not an issue, an issue outside of prisons um, because I think most people outside of prison, you have your family, you know, it's my wife, my kids, you know, we go to church, I work. I'm an engineer, I'm a security officer, or whatever I do. Um, so your identity is kind of wrapped up in all that, and it's pretty mainstream. But right. in prison, it's it's front and center all the time, who you will be. Um, are you in this gang? Are you with that group? Uh, who are you? And then the whole issue of crime, are you the criminal? And so hmm. they have all of our clothes are stenciled. You can't see it in the picture so much. But all of our clothes, uh, so you can't see it in that picture, but a lot of these clothes on the back, say, on the back of the shirt say, say CDC. CDC prisoner. Right. And so there's always this feeling um, that, you know, are you a prisoner? Are you a convict? Are you an inmate? Are you a, are you a thief? You know, are you a murderer? Who who are you? Is constantly front and center. So you have to const you have to hang on to your identity in Christ very deliberately right. in prison. And then um, the challenge of what direction you will go and how you will live is constantly in your face there. So um, I. Th after I've been out a while, it's, it's it's very frequent out here too. Every time you go into a liquor store, it could possibly challenge you, right? Who yeah. you will be. Um, so, 
but it felt like that's one of the verses that I had to constantly hang on to yeah. that, um, that no matter what the circumstances that I find myself living in, that my identity is in Christ. Hmm. Now, um, that's a good verse to hold on to, but, um, during your parole hearing, I know they questioned the victim's family mm-hmm. and, uh, one of them actually wrote into the parole board and, um, vouch for you as well. Mm-hmm. And this person's a family member or relative of the, the victims, right? Mm-hmm. Um, they sent you a letter as well. Mm-hmm. What, what did it feel like to hear from them after all these years? Mm-hmm. So the victim's family, unknown to me, had sent a letter to the parole department and, and told them that if I had done the right things over all of these years, that they were in support of my release. Hmm. Which speaks volumes to, you know, mm-hmm. because, yeah. um, you know, a lot of times people w- will say, I want him to rot. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, I want it says him to a die. lot about and, them. And, uh, mm-hmm. and I'm assuming they they have some sort of faith mm-hmm. or are religious in a way for mm-hmm. them to write that. Mm-hmm. And that when I heard that, mm-hmm. the first time you, you mentioned that to me, I got emotional about mm-hmm. it just because yeah, it, it's it's a second chance mm. in the world, you mm-hmm. know, and for them to grant you that um, mm-hmm. opportunity is, 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 is awesome. Yeah, and it was impactful to me because even though I had become a Christian and grappled with these issues of forgiveness and all, you know, what that feels like to be forgiven and do you forgive yourself? You know, are you able to forgive other people? Uh, wrestling with your sense of identity. So this is um, 30 years going through this. But when I read that letter from them for the first time, it, um, it was like taking all the doctrine mm-hmm. and all the conceptual things of what we believe and physically taking a weight off of my shoulder. Wow. It, it was something physically felt that this family had released me from this debt. In the same way that Jesus paid the debt for us. Yeah. You know, and, uh, mm-hmm. um, December of 2014 comes mm-hmm. and you get released. Mm-hmm. And you uh, move to North Cal, right? North. Yeah, San Francisco. And, mm-hmm. uh, and you start working, you get involved. Mm-hmm. Well, what do you start doing after that? So uh, the condition of my parole is that I would, uh, first thing when I got out, would check myself into uh, a program, the minimum of 90 days into a recovery house. And so that was um, my agreement with the parole board during my parole hearing. I submitted to them my, my potential parole plans that, um, that I recognized that after so much time in prison, I would need help transitioning, not just uh, physically, but mentally and emotionally. How old were you at that time? So now I'm 50. Okay. Mm-hmm. And Man, that's uh, at that time you were fifty. No, mm-hmm. you're fifty now. No, now I'm fifty-eight. Oh, fifty-eight. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I was like, wait, no. So eighteen, you're eighteen years old, and now you're fifty. Mm-hmm. That is decades. Yeah. So the culture shock coming mm-hmm. out was great. Yeah, the cars talk to you now. <laughs> right. Cell so, phones. There was no so, internet. Right. Mm-hmm. What's that culture shock like 
coming out into society all over again mm-hmm. and uh, being incarcerated for 32 years, seeing mm-hmm. the same gray walls. Yeah. I know you mentioned in, this, in prison is different. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, you see the same thing every day mm-hmm. and you recognize a little change, you yeah. know, a little speck on the wall. Mm-hmm. What was that like coming out into society? It was like going from a really small pond to a huge, fast-moving river. I don't, there's, it's hard to describe because your, your, your emotion, emotional mind and thinking mind adjusts and adapts to an environment. Mm-hmm. And, um, and so the, the way that your mind thinks, the decisions you make, or the lack of decisions, really, um, changes to now thousands of decisions on a daily basis more than you made on the inside. Uh, if you just think of the activity of driving, if you never drive and if you live in a small environment, um, just the activity of driving has so many decisions right. associated to it that you know you have I haven't experienced for the last 30 years. And uh, not to mention um, taking care of your own bills, buying your clothes, uh, you know, just all the different functions of life that you don't do inside. And anxiety overload, you know, and yeah, and uh, yeah, I remember moments of being in crowded, uh, especially the first few crowded experiences, like um, uh, Fisher, Fisherman's Wharf in San Francisco was mm-hmm. one of the first few times. Um, just uh, not being able to see each person, not knowing them. So I was used to being in an environment where, it, even if you didn't know the person, if there's a thousand people living in the uh, most prisons are broken up into smaller sub-facilities. Right. So even if I don't know them all personally, I'm kind of used to what they look like. They're here. Oh, there's someone new. Uh, so you're, it's kind of easy to track your environment right. inside. And so now all of a sudden, I'm in an environment you can't look everyone in the face. You, you can't possibly even be slightly aware. They have their travelers from other countries speaking different languages you know it's constant Hmm. so i just remember feeling the change in my own mind that i can't possibly look and see everything i can't drive and see every tree i can't you know walk in a in a busy sidewalk and look at every person and my brain had to adapt to a larger world more faces more people uh strangers around me um and then um, standing on the side of the road where cars are, you know, <laughs> driving by just a few feet away. Right. And they're driving by at fast speeds. And uh, just, you know, a lot of, um, a lot of uh, context of life that you j- just haven't lived in for the last three decades. Going to the store and deciding which... Um, toothpaste or deodorant to buy what items to buy in the store um so we had we had small commissaries on the inside where you could buy deodorant but there's two there's two brands right that you could choose from now you're out and there's like a hundred there's a whole you know long shelf five five shelves high and (laughs) and half the aisle long Mm -hmm. and you know yeah i mean i still have a hard time picking deodorant sometimes right and it's just like Mm -hmm. Okay, this is what for, and you know, and mm-hmm. I can't imagine, you know, uh, being there, mm-hmm. and you know, toothpaste, clothes. Uh, I mean, mm-hmm. you're married now, so mm-hmm. I'm assuming for like 
grocery shopping. Well, my wife knows that if she asked me to go buy some salad dressing, it's probably going to take me a long time. Now, does she use that as an excuse for her to get some free time? <laughs> she might. <laughs> yeah, usually usually if I'm gone for a long time and she asked me, well, you know, why did it take you so long? I said, well, you sent me into Ralph's grocery store. Right. <laughs> you sent me into Safeway. Yeah. It's it's like, you know, someone going to a mall for the first time. So you just celebrated a uh, uh, another year of being free mm -hmm. in uh, December. December. And so, by the way, my release date uh, was December 24th, Christmas Eve. 30, um, what was it now? 32 years right. from the, oh, 35 years actually. Uh, Cause I, my parents were arrested and then a few years later I was arrested. So from the day of their arrest, December 24th, 1979 was 35 years to the day wow. that I was released. So it's kind of encapsulated because that was kind of my jumping off point into my own prison with drugs and alcohol. Um, so they were arrested on Christmas Eve, Christmas Day. I said, I'm an addict. For, so it's like I just walked into my own prison. And then on Christmas Eve, 35 years later, kind of like a, feels like a generation has uh, now yeah. passed. You know, I'm being released from prison for the first time in 35 years. Yeah, yeah. And um, we'll save this for another time, but your parents also found uh, Christ mm -hmm. in the same way you did. Yeah, they were evangelized by missionaries in Mexico prison. And now, you know, you guys have a relationship where mm -hmm. you guys can relate to mm -hmm. deeper than most people can. Mm -hmm. And uh, that is awesome to hear, too, that they also became, you mm -hmm. know, Christians in that way. Mm -hmm. um, but back to, like, the culture shock part of it, um, you, you've mentioned to me that even now, or when you first, the few, first few years of you being out, mm -hmm. it was hard for you to go out and, uh, you know, take a walk at the beach, mm -hmm. go for a hike somewhere, because right. you're used to having a routine. Mm -hmm. And um, <clears throat> I don't know if it's changed for you um, this no. last year. Well, I still feel it uh, quite a bit. So um, it's like when you would see a movie and they would they would be in an area of the world that's very interesting or even fireworks on on um on the television on uh, new fourth year's eve or fourth yeah. of july seeing fireworks and um i find it very hard to not still see that on television and i'll say to myself that's just laguna beach is right over there it's one of the most beautiful places in the world um i could get in my car and be there in such mm. a short, and I just sit there and still watch it on TV. So it's, I think there's, um, not only in that area, but um, very often the feelings of hypervigilance, what's right. going on around me, um, the concept of not being able to um, just relax into where I'm at, like the concept of retiring or right. taking a break <laughs> yeah. or a vacation or something like that. It doesn't, it doesn't feel, I'm, there's a part of me that's still a lifer looking mm. for the next program to be part of or um, what's what's the next you know best way to survive in my situation right and so it's kind of wrapped up from 18 years old to 50 the the feeling of what th that is like is still part of me so it's not 
my first impulse is not just to go, hey, let's go relax on the beach. Right. And uh, or let's go take a, a long vacation and just, you know, do nothing. Right. <laughs> but enjoy the scenery. It just it hardly dawns on me. So my somebody has to pull me out of my head. Right. And uh, get me going. Although I, I do have to say that driving is um, one of my favorite things to do, even if it's just to drive to work or to the store. Or, um, I will take a trip. And even if if the trip is not even to go to relax, at least getting in my car and being able to drive. And uh, Why do you think that is? Um, I think that I... Um, that scenery on that photo that we're looking at there... Um, was scenery that I saw for 18 years. Hmm. So the trees on that mountain, um, the color of those uh, buildings, the razor wire, the flagpole, actually that's a light pole. Um, all So this is uh, 18 years of all of my scenery in life is right there. Hmm. And very little differentiation. So, right. you know. so I, I love the feeling of freedom that I have getting in my car and just taking a drive just even if it's just to go to the store wow yeah and people take that for granted you know freedom mm -hmm. and uh i think just what you just shared plays a big role as to why a lot of these inmates that come back to society relapse mm -hmm. and return to the mm -hmm. old ways because yeah. they have a routine mm -hmm. overwhelming them out in society mm -hmm. is too much for them Mm -hmm. and uh yeah um plus if we haven't resolved like uh celebrate recovery we talked about hurts hang-ups and habits so there's initial hurt that leads to hang-ups of thoughts and feelings how we feel and then it leads to habits that we use to to deal with them coping skills right but if there's an original hurt in there that i haven't resolved haven't dealt with or if if i feel like I can deal with it once and then forget about it the rest of my life, but I still need to, to continue to grow in those areas. Then if I have that inside of me and then I get out of prison and I face stresses that trigger, you know, how I feel inside, whether it's shame, whether it's fear, whether it's trauma. And it's, uh, so it's easy to go back to the coping skills that help me. Hmm. And so most of the men and women that are getting out of prison know how to use drugs. Right. They know how to do, use coping skills. They know how to do the things that help them resolve whatever's going on inside of them. So um, so maybe in prison they, they may have turned to Christ and they may have done well in a structured environment. I'm, I'm a big fan of jailhouse religion now, <laughs> yeah. having experienced it myself. <laughs> I know that God, you know, he, he loves us and whatever shape we're in, he takes us in. But I think when they get out and still struggle with the hurts and the hangups, it's easy to go back to the habits. Right. So you're now located in San Francisco. Uh, you commit to what you told the parole board you're going to do. Mm -hmm. um, when do you hear from Saddleback Church uh, to come, one, share your testimony, but also two, mm -hmm. um, become a staff member? Mm -hmm. So right away, <laughs> yeah, so they wanted me to come right away. They had, um, they even had a, a house uh, with a bunch of fellas living in the house and a, and a room ready for me. And, uh, but I needed to finish uh, an obligation 
there in um, San Francisco. And so I checked myself in and for 90 days lived, you know, in a structured environment right. uh, with going to, um, they let me go to church on the weekends and then they let me go to celebrate recovery. And then inside the facility where I was at, they had Alcoholics Anonymous and, uh, and a lot of other rehab programs. So I did 30 hours a week of rehab programs. And then I also checked myself into uh, therapy and saw a therapist once a week. Uh, for a year. And then, um, so I transitioned after 90 days to more of a halfway house. Right. And uh, lo and behold, I got a job right away. And uh, it's not easy all the time to get a parole transfer. So if I might, I'm stationed in San Francisco and I'm on parole, uh, they want me to fulfill an obligation before they'll let me transfer my parole location. You can't drive uh, past 50 miles. Yeah. <laughs> so you have a 50 mile radius. When you first get out, so believe Sorry, me, Danny, you can't go to Orange County. Just no, yet. <laughs> not yet. They did. A, they did give me travel passes, so that uh, shortly after I was released, I was able to come here to Saddleback nice. and attend uh, the big Celebrate Recovery Summit and share my story here. Which is, I actually have a picture of that mm -hmm. um, right here, where you're on. That's on it. Stage. So that is um, still my parole is still location in San Francisco, but they gave me a travel pass to come here for a few days. And I shared my story here at the summit with a couple thousand people. Yeah. And then uh, unknown to me, Pastor Rick was uh, watching, you know, in his, you know, behind the altar area was watching. And, and then after I shared my story, he came out and uh, most of the elders of Saddleback Church were there and, um, uh, gave me a, that's a, this award is a, kind of a faithful service award for um, the years of serving God inside the prison, starting Celebrate Recoveries in several places and purpose-driven churches and um, gave me that award and uh, just kind of announced to everyone there that I was called to be a pastor and then uh, Pastor Rick said, he's going to be a pastor here. <laughs> so... Um, that, uh, was very exciting to everyone. And then began the story of, you know, this guy got out of prison and is going to come and be a pastor here. So I, I did have to go back to San Francisco after this event. I had to go back, uh, for a few more months to finish getting my parole transferred. So this is in the summer of 20. What, what did that feel like? I mean, you, here you are, you get released 2014 mm -hmm. and then, um, get invited to speak at a mega church mm -hmm. it was overwhelming and to have the elders of mm -hmm. this church come out at the end of your testimony so that that part was good so the number of people in the, uh the celebrate recovery summits are like a huge party for three days so the overwhelming number of people and activity was too much mm -hmm. but the moments of um these moments where you feel a sense of calling. You feel like this is another one of those crossroads moments that only God could have orchestrated and brought this about in such a way that, you know, in my mind, um, to be honest, before this day, there was part of me in my mind saying, I don't know if I can go do that. Mm. I don't know if I'm equipped well enough to do that. I don't know if I could fit in 
um, I'm always going to have this chip on my shoulder. There's always not not attitude, but um, in my mind, always a lifer. There's part of me. I mean, when I got the job in San Francisco and they gave me keys to the facility, it felt weird to have those keys mm. to let myself in and out of the clinic each day with nobody guarding me, right. with nobody checking on me. And uh, so how in the world could I come here or any church for that matter and take on this mantle? But this moment was one where God really opened up and I just, I felt like this was a big yes hmm. and uh, just kind of overwhelmed me in some ways and in other ways, you know, settled me that this would be the, the next calling. Your home. Yeah. And it's still your home. Yep. Years later. Mm-hmm. Um, <clears throat> and uh, you were given the title of the national director for mm-hmm. CR. Yeah. Uh, for the prison system. Mm-hmm. And you're still doing that. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, I like this program that you have every year, the Angel Tree. Mm-hmm. For those that um, want to know mm-hmm. what Angel Tree is, um, it's a, a Christmas event where you gather and your team gather gifts mm-hmm. for these kids whose parents may be in the prison system. Mm-hmm. And I think the awesome part of it is that you guys make these uh, the gifts mm-hmm. um, out to the kids on behalf of the parents, yeah, which mm-hmm. which connects the kid, which allows the kid to feel mm-hmm. like there's still a way to be connected with their parents. Mm-hmm. And uh, the first time I heard that is when I actually was met, met, sort of met you the first time mm-hmm. um, in in the other office. That um, and uh, when I heard about it, I was like, man, this is awesome. Yeah, and uh, it's it's good to know that the that God. Uh, used you from day one of your prison sentence mm-hmm. and uh, still continuing to use you. Mm-hmm. Um, you shared your testimony at different locations. Mm-hmm. You're still involved with the prison system. Is there something that you would say to someone that may listen to this um, audio here, this podcast, mm-hmm. or watch it mm-hmm. um, uh, in regards to what they may be going through, whether it's a prison sentence mm-hmm. or their family is going through that. Mm-hmm. Uh, is there something that you would say to that that person? Yeah, I think a couple of themes seem to come out here today. And one was that it's um, that God takes us just as we are and not having to become religious or uh, change how we look or whether we're in a prison or out or what crimes we committed or, or whatever's going on with our life, that um, he's able to take us right where we are, change our heart on the inside, and then set us into a pathway that has a different trajectory. Mm. Um, Not that it's going to be easy, but it is a trajectory that gradually gets brighter and brighter. Just like the proverb says that uh, the path of the just is like the first gleam of dawn that shines ever brighter till Mm. the full light of day. And um, I think that's that's a major message here and the other is that we are able to grow and to fulfill callings and know that we're in God's path and purpose for us regardless of the circumstances whether we're rich or poor in prison or out of prison or whatever our circumstances of life um, that we 
um, can blossom right where we're planted, that we can grow right there and be used right there. You know, it's not about a title or um, any particular where we live or where we work. It's just that right, God uses us right where we're at. Reminds me of Romans eight twenty eight. Mm-hmm. For you know, all things will work for the good of those yeah. who follow Christ. Mm-hmm. And I mean, you're a testament to that. Mm-hmm. And uh, <clears throat> um, what is a website link that people can go to if they they want to be involved with the Celebrate Recovery? Mm-hmm. So they can get on uh, we uh, crinsideouthope.org. That's our uh, CR Inside website, and um, they can connect with me there. And I'll usually if they. You know, ask for more information there. I'll usually get an email and can respond or connect them with the with a local state rep. So CR Inside has a team of about eighty um, volunteer state reps and regional reps mm. around the country that we uh, coordinate together the efforts for Inside Prison Ministry. And uh, if they're local and they want to be involved with Angel Tree or in some way. Um, involved with the prison ministry here they're welcome to contact me right through saddleback church's uh website okay and um they can definitely get to uh celebrate recovery just by going to celebraterecovery.com which is cool by the way i checked Mm -hmm. it out the other day Mm -hmm. and you can pretty much type in whatever state you're in right and a nearby city or place will have a location for you to attend right which which um, I was navigating through the site, and it actually explains to you as well what CR is all about, mm-hmm. so you don't get all freaked out about you know yeah. showing up. And I will say, CR is my favorite group because they are committed regardless. I know right. through the pandemic, mm-hmm. uh, buildings were closed, and they met outside. Yeah, rain, shine, mm-hmm. cold, heat, whatever it was, they yeah. were here gathered together. Right. And I've never seen such a dedicated group. And I think it's for people like you mm-hmm. and some of the leaders that absolutely will uh, commit to that. Right. Um, and that mm-hmm. calling. So there's about 30,000 Celebrate Recoveries in communities around the country. So if they get on the CelebrateRecovery.com website, they'll find a Celebrate Recovery near them. And you guys also have a Facebook page, I think. Yep. And an yep. Instagram page. Yep. We okay. have Celebrate Recovery. Uh for we have celebrate recovery official i think is for the instagram page and facebook page so awesome danny i want to thank you again for coming out and just taking the time to do this Mm -hmm. uh you're a very busy man and um you know i i'm always like an ear when it comes to hearing people's story and Mm -hmm. um you know i appreciate you letting me listen to the story and for you telling it for the uh, the audience that may be listening to this as well. Mm-hmm. I appreciate you being here and look forward to doing a follow-up if we get to that or maybe Absolutely. having more people on here. Yeah. If you would like to know more about Celebrate Recovery, you can go to CelebrateRecovery.com or Saddleback.com slash Celebrate Recovery. You can also follow them on Facebook at Celebrate Recovery at Saddleback Church or Instagram at Celebrate Recovery Official. Thank you again for joining us. I hope you like and share this podcast.